Welcome. Uh, thank you for uh, joining the Longwoods Leadership Discussion. For those of you joining for the first time, I do keep my intros very short. I've been looking forward to today and it promises to be a very engaging discussion. Before we start, I would like to thank the Federation of Medical Women of Canada for supporting today's event and helping bring everyone together. As well, I would like to acknowledge uh, Merck Canada for providing an educational grant. I'd also like to mention that although Merck has a product in this space, the company has zero influence on, in the discussion comments and recommendations that are provided for today. Guide us through today, I would like to introduce you to Kelly Grant. Kelly is a health reporter for the Globe and Mail with many focus areas that include health policy, politics, politics and health made, and uh, this year a specific focus on healthcare in Nunavut. Kelly, the show is yours. Thanks so much, Matt. Uh, and hello, everyone. I'm pleased to be moderating this discussion on this important public health topic today. So I want to thank the Federation of Medical Women of Canada for its initiative in holding this and in marking HPV Prevention Week, which is this week. So while this session will focus more squarely on the situation in Ontario, this problem we're going to talk about today is being faced by many provinces to different degrees, and it really does need to be addressed across Canada. The issue is that the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted routine and school-based vaccinations, resulting in a crisis of delayed and missed vaccinations for many kids across Ontario. So to put things in perspective, in the 2020-21 school year, according to Public Health Ontario, only 1% of 12-year-olds were up to date on their immunizations for HPV. Other school-based vaccines, including for Hep B and meningococcal meningitis, uh, are better, but they're also far too low, both at 17%. HPV infection has been linked to cervical cancer, as well as several other cancers, such as head and neck cancer. And another fact, important factor that I'm sure we will discuss is that Ontario does not have good data that tracks who is vaccinated and who isn't. So what we want to do in this webinar today is discuss what this problem means for public health and our health system. As well, we want to look at what concrete steps need to be taken to help lead us in the right direction to catch up on vaccines missed during the pandemic and to achieve a higher HPV immunization rate, closer to the 90% immunization target that Canada has committed to. So to do this, we've got an excellent expert panel for you today. Each of them brings a particular expertise to the dangers of the current situation and the actions that are needed to help fix it. So I'll introduce them all briefly now, and then we'll get our discussion going right away. So first we have Dr. Vivian Brown. She's a Toronto family physician, leader of the Federation of Medical Women of Canada, chair of the HPV Immunization Task Force, and a board member of Immunize Canada. Next, we've got Liz Elwood. She's from Ottawa. She's a survivor of cervical cancer who's become a vocal patient advocate for HPV education and vaccination. We also have Dr. Vanita Dubé. She's an Associate Medical Officer of Health and Communicable Diseases for Toronto Public Health. And she's on the faculty of the Dalalana School of Public Health at U of T. And Dr. Chloe Razan is a medical resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the Ottawa Hospital. Thank you all for joining us today. We really appreciate it. So now I'd like to start off by turning to you first, Dr. Brown, and to ask that, you know, as a family physician, can you just tell us in broad strokes why HPV vaccination is important and just explain the link between HPV infections and cancers? Certainly, Kelly, and thank you so much. And thank you to everybody for being here. Um, very basic background is HPV refers to human papillomavirus. And the connection between human papillomavirus and cervical cancer was made by Harold Zurhausen, um, and he got the Nobel Prize for this work in 2008. That's about the same time that the vaccine was launched. And what we know is about 75% of adults will be exposed to HPV at some point in their life. And most of us clear that HPV virus. We don't get infected, we don't get cancer but about 20% 20, 20 of us don't clear it. And that 20% go on to have persistent HPV and persistent HPV eventually will lead to a cancer if it, you have the serotype or the type of HPV that is cancer producing. We see cancers in the cervix in women, we see anal cancer, vaginal cancer, vulvar cancer. And in men, we also see penile cancer, anal cancer, and one of the rapidly increasing cancers is head and neck cancers. It's about male to female ratio of three to one right now in Canada, and it's surpassing cervical cancer in terms of its numbers. 
So HPV is a virus. Most of us clear it, but because we don't know who does and who doesn't, the goal is to immunize everybody so that we won't face the risk of these cancers. Okay, thanks a lot, Dr. Brown. Liz, I'd like to turn to you because you know, you had personal experience with cervical cancer. So would you be able to start by sharing your own story? Um, yeah, sure. So when I was 24 years old, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And oddly enough, I, I didn't know about HPV before I was diagnosed. So this was dating myself now, but this was back in 2006. 2007 and at the same appointment when I I was meeting with the the uh gyne gyne oncologist and I, I hadn't even really put together that I was going to see an oncologist I was young I didn't have a medical background I, I wasn't really paying that much attention and I went to the appointment and when he showed me the area on the screen that actually um that that where the he he looked at it and he pointed it and he's like and this is the area we think the tumor is <laughs> and I was like what what and and that's that's the moment right the moment when everything changed because after that came you know diagnostic procedures and unfortunately for me um you know surgery chemotherapy radiation the whole gamut of 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 you know treatment to eradicate my cancer but in that appointment i learned about hpv and i i vowed to myself after that appointment well I want my story to at least have some value value to it for me. And for me, that was taking my story and sharing it with others. So hopefully they would get the vaccination and, and they wouldn't be me one day. They wouldn't be that person who had to make decisions about, you know, should I freeze my eggs? Should I not freeze my eggs? Should I adopt? Should I try to use egg donor and surrogate? Like the choices were taken away from me at that moment because of HPV. And I, I'm okay now I'm so lucky that the treatment worked on me because it doesn't work for everyone. Um, but I would love if the next generation of women don't ever have to make choices like that because they don't have to deal with cervical cancer. And the bottom line is, is we have something that's going to prevent cervical cancer for future generations. Why not use that tool from our toolbox? Okay, thank you for willing to be able to tell us about that, Liz. Uh Young women and men now have the ability to get this vaccine, and normally they get it at school. But because of the COVID-19 pandemic, that school-based vaccination was disrupted. So, Dr. Dubé, if I could come to you next to just tell us a bit about how um, the pandemic-related school closures has disrupted vaccination for school-age kids. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic has disrupted a lot for our children. In fact, our children have suffered a lot from the pandemic. And school closures had a very direct effect on their education, on their mental health, but also on their vaccinations and preventing cancer. Who knew? Um, and, you know, from March of 2020, uh, I think all schools, most schools across the country were closed. And if you were in grade seven or eight in Ontario and around the same age across the country and got your first dose of one of these vaccines in the fall, it's around March that you would go and get your second dose and yet the schools were shut down and so you could not get that. And then the next year, and then the next year, most public health um, who go in and provide these vaccines in schools were not able to do it, partly because schools were busy tackling COVID. Many students were studying virtually. Schools were closed as well too. And as well, public health was dealing with the other pandemic, the COVID pandemic and providing vaccines for COVID. And so for all of those reasons, it's been three years of students who haven't been able to either start or finish their vaccination in the school-based program. And we know from data before the pandemic that when you provide these vaccines in schools, you actually make it easier for parents, easier for students, you get very good uptake, and it can actually be very efficient. And I think the pandemic has showed us, actually, it continues to be a very good intervention because we, when we can't provide these vaccines in schools, in school, students often cannot access them. These are very expensive vaccines. Um, and so there's often you have to order it separately if your doctor's going to give it to you. And so that is why the pandemic has 
uh, left many students uh, not up to date and why now actually globally there are catch-up programs for all vaccines that students or children may have missed but in particular for these ones in the school setting because we're never going to get those grade sevens back into grade seven now they've moved on they're grade nine they're in grade 10 and we have to find mm -hmm. other ways to to get this vaccine uh, to them uh, if they choose to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So uh, if I can turn to Dr. Rosan now, uh, you see the, the sort of other end of the experience, right? Like, you know, Liz experiences as a patient, you see it as a doctor in your patients. So can you tell us, you know, when you meet um, women through your practice who have cervical cancer, what is it like for them? Yeah, um, so I say, obstetrics and gynecology resident or a physician who's training to be an OBGYN, uh, I do a variety of clinical rotations. So, you know, most of my training were five years is spent on the birthing unit or in the operating room, but in one month, I may be in the ICU and the next I may be in the emergency department, uh, specifically on a gynae oncology rotation. And, you know, what really strikes me is the HPV is, is everywhere. I've seen it in, in each of those rotations. So, you know, whether it's been in a urology clinic where I've seen a male who was affected by genital warts or, you know, females in an ICU setting or a gynae oncology setting that are fighting cervical cancer, it really is everywhere. And I think Liz gave us a good, you know, insight of how meaningful it can be. And it can really impact people in a lot of, in many ways of their life. So, you know, they're having to balance sometimes in terms of cervical cancer, uh, difficult fertility questions and decisions that they're having to make uh, at an earlier age while sort of dealing with, you know, this news of having a cancer and sometimes in my experience fighting for their lives and it can be quite devastating. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a cruel disease. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm very happy that most of the patients I've seen we're seeing in colposcopy clinic, and that's a clinic where women who have an abnormal pap test um, are referred to to have a closer look and again screen for these, these tumors, these precancers, these cancers of the cervix. And the good news is that for the most part, we catch these early. But the even better news is that through HPV vaccination, we can prevent it even a step ahead. So, you know, I've really seen. Um, Unfortunately, from the very early diagnostic stages to the to the uh, last few days, and I think uh, the answer is very clear here. It's just to prevent it altogether. So knowing that we do have this tool to prevent it altogether, um, and knowing that we also have a big problem in that we have this you know cohort of students who have missed the opportunity to get vaccinated, um, I want to ask Dr. Brown, what are the things you think governments should be doing to correct this? Well, what the Federation did in February is we convened a task force. We called it a task force to address the crisis in the system. And that crisis refers to the drop off of, of immunization. You know, according to the World Health Organization, we should have 90% of people under the age of 25 immunized by 2025 if we're going to eliminate cervical cancer as a public health issue. Our numbers were less than 1% when we look at the school-based program in 2020, 2021. So our task force came up with a number of recommendations. There were 11 short-term and six long-term recommendations, but the bottom line is we said it has to be all hands on deck. We have to have public health go back into the school system, but that still misses some people. We have to have pharmacists able to immunize. We have to have family doctors able to immunize. And part of the problem is record keeping. Nobody has access to the public health registry about who's had vaccine and who has not had vaccine. And so when we look at what we want government to do, we want there to be good communication. We want the Minister of Health to talk with the Minister of Education and send home a concise letter to everybody so that there's not mis mixed messages coming from government, from Toronto Public Health, from Public Health Ontario, maybe from a local hospital. You know, there's 34 public health units in Ontario and they all do things slightly differently. Dr. Dubé is with Toronto Public Health, which clearly is the biggest, 
but there's 34 public health units. If one is doing one thing, and some public health units have done a great job, but across the street, another public health unit is doing things differently, parents are left saying, why? What's the difference? I don't get this. So we've asked the government to be uniform in terms of the information they're sending out, to be clear and concise about the messaging, to support pharmacists having access to public health stock of vaccine. Right now, we've got a lot of pharmacists ready to immunize. They've done a great job with influenza and a great job with COVID. And we've got lots of vaccines sitting in public health that's already been purchased and bought that we're not using for these students. And so why can't we get not just family doctors having access to vaccine, but pharmacists? Well, one of the things that's a problem is the lack of the registry. Kids don't know what they've had. Parents may not know what they've had. And as a family doctor or a pharmacist, I don't have access to the public health record. A parent does, but mm. a family doctor doesn't. So this record keeping and registry has to be much more, much more clarified or much clarified in a much better way. And we did that with COVID. And so we need to learn some of the lessons from COVID and use it for HPV. So Dr. Dubé, since you're, you know, sort of on the ground trying to administer these vaccination programs, can you just sort of address some of the concerns that Dr. Brown raised? Like, what are you doing at Toronto Health to try to deal with, Toronto Public Health, sorry, to try to deal with some of those issues around record keeping and around making these vaccines available to school-age kids, particularly the HPV vaccine? Well, the first thing that we're doing, and we just launched last week, is going back into schools. So this year, for the first time, after two and a half years, we're in a grade seven and eight schools providing the vaccine. So this will allow at least two cohorts, the, the grade sevens who are now eligible and the grade eights who were grade sevens last year may not have gotten vaccine vaccinated. So it's actually a double cohort effect. So that's a great first start, I think. And we need to make sure though that our um, nurses are uh, able to provide, to, to have the capacity to do this. And right now at Toronto Public Health, it's the school-based uh, nurses that are actually providing this service. And so this was extra funding from the, the Ministry of Health uh, to, to schools to support uh, school health. So some of these extra funding initiatives are absolutely necessary. It's taken us two and a half years to, in, in Toronto, it was 84,000 to start with students who were not vaccinated. Um, missing a vaccine and it's going to take, uh, we have to recognize this is going to take years in order to be able to catch people up. And so it's going to take years of catch up funding, catch up mm -hmm. initiatives. I think another way to, to catch up students is to have catch up clinics in high schools as well. Um, but we do have to really get that message out that, okay, you missed this, you missed it because of the pandemic. Um, and how can we make it easy for you to get the vaccine? Now we've seen um, great efforts at providing vaccines at the local level, very uh, um, easy to access that that actually works, but it takes an awful lot of resources. And so we're gonna need to see some of that investment uh, ongoing for, for the next few years in order to, to catch up all of those, those students. We also do have to think about those students who have graduated and, you know, some of the 18 and 19 year olds, they may be in post-secondary schools. I mean, we have had clinics at some of those schools and so, um, and their risk may be right now, um, but they're still eligible because their eligibility for free vaccine has extended. And so we actually also have to work with post-secondary institutions and, and other places, you know, it's, it has to be broad reaching. And uh, unfortunately, that means multifaceted as, as well. So let's say I'm a parent of a student who's in grade nine, right, and missed their, missed their vaccine and I live in Toronto, or I live in another part of the country where, you know, my public health unit has not come back into the schools to start giving vaccines. And I want my son or daughter to get the HPV or some of these other vaccines that are usually given at this age. How do I go about getting them? Just from a practical perspective, who do I call and who do I ask? Dr. Dubay? Yeah, so great question. Um, start with your uh, local public health unit. And 
you know, I, I say that is the framework for Ontario, but even if you are in Alberta or out east, it is public health that classically gives the, the HPV vaccine. So start by connecting with them to find out. Uh, some health units may have their own catch-up clinics at their own offices. They may be able to send the vaccine somewhere. They may be able to, to tell you if we're coming into your school, for example. So that would be the first place that you could start. Now, we do certainly uh, stay communicating with primary care, have sent out messages to them. So connecting with your your doctor, your nurse practitioner, um, they may also have received information from public health and can at least guide you in terms of where you can go to get more information. I think though also Google may help you as well because we certainly do try to keep our website posted in terms of how you can access um, these vaccines. And I, and I can say at our, at our local health unit, you know, we have a website, tphbookings.ca, you can go there, you can book an appointment, it says who is eligible as well. Kelly, can I just jump in there for sure. a second? In the scenario you gave us, uh, you being the parent and wanting to know where to get the vaccine, number one, you speak the language, you speak English. Mm-hmm. And number two, you know that your kid has missed a vaccine. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that don't know their kids have missed vaccine that may not have, uh, you know, they don't know what they don't know because their kids weren't in school. They didn't bring home a letter. There was no school. And so we've got a lot of people out there that don't realize their children have missed vaccine and don't know how to access the system. And so I think it's a really important question. And, and that's why we're trying to do this panel and bring this forward in HPV week so that there's some education for the general public because often parents don't know that they've missed anything. And they may not know even really what the various vaccinations are for. Like, I'll be honest, like, you know, I go in and I see, I'm fortunate to have a really great primary care doctor and I've got three kids and like, we go in every now and then and they say, hey, you're overdue for vaccine X. And then they, you know, shoot my kids up full of vaccines and I know they're safe, but I, it's not on me. Like, I'm fortunate that I've got a family doctor who's like that. So I want to, just because we're talking about awareness now, I want to ask Liz again, what are some of the ways in which we can raise awareness of the need, particularly for the HPV vaccine? Uh, and, you know, in your own work, what have you done and seen that works for actually raising awareness? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I always go back to stories, right? And telling the stories of people who have, you know, unfortunately been in that minority population. Like what we know is that we can prevent a virus that causes cancer. Therefore we can prevent cancer, right? And we can prevent not just a type of cancer that, not just any cancer, a cancer that strikes young women usually or young. And now we know more often young men in the prime of their lives during years when they're launching their careers, they're starting their education. It it can be older than that too. But my experience has been personally with a lot of other young women. So seeing them and, and like Chloe alluded to, um, you know, the women who don't survive this disease, they fight long and they fight hard and it doesn't end well. It's a very painful, debilitating disease to, to try to fight. It's, it's a long battle. It's, you know, I, I can only talk to Let's share our stories. Let's let's share the open the dialogue that you don't know who's going to be the person that's that's, you know, it's like musical chairs. You don't know what chair is going to get pulled and who's going to be have the short straw. I'm just using all the analogies there are, but it's true. You just don't know. It's it's a numbers game. And I can't think of one parent out there whose child would get like if your child got cancer, what would you think other than how could I have not gotten them the vaccine? right? You're not going to have any other thought in the world. So just do yourself a favor and, and have the vaccine, get the vaccine. Like it's, it's very simple. I, I can't, I, to this day, because of my treatment, I suffer from nerve pain. I suffer from different issues. I, I have managed to still have a very fulfilling life, but don't think there aren't health side effects that you will carry for the rest of your life from the treatment because they're aggressive, they're painful and they're debilitating. Um, 
And I just want to quickly touch on, um, you know, I know we're almost at time, but I see the leftovers or what was left after these women leave the world. I'm still connected to their families. So I see the sisters having babies, having the nieces and nephews of these young women who have passed away, the mothers becoming grandmothers without them. I see the husbands remarried, having babies with new wives and these children being left with other mothers. And now they have step children and stepmothers and 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 the world husbands and sons mourning years later and and parents left who had an only child left without children who are now going through their elder years without a child um these these lives are impacted so greatly and in ways that they never recover from the best thing you can do is get this vaccination make sure your children are up to date and make sure you're never one of these stories because these stories are are horrible to live through and I imagine, well, first of all, thank you, Liz. And I, Dr. Rosanna, I wanted to say, I imagine that you have some thoughts on how to raise awareness as well. And so tell me some of the things that you have seen work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, recently, I was on a pediatric and adolescent gynecology rotation. And I, you know, our younger generations are smart we should not underestimate them. They, they totally understand the importance of HPV vaccination and preventing HPV related diseases. It's like Liz said, you know, I think the general education around HPV is a virus that causes cancer. It, they understand this and they are so receptive. They want to learn, they want to protect themselves. So it really hit me that yes, we need to be reaching parents. We also need to be reaching these kids because they get it. And, and I think, you know, educating them, empowering them to make these decisions for themselves is super important as well. So, you know, how do we get the message across to them? I'm, I'm not on TikTok. I think there's, you know, social media platforms that could be utilized that would be reaching multiple of these, you know, of these younger generations. Um, certainly I've taken upon myself every time I see a patient, I've made a vow to myself. I will talk to each and every single one of them about HPV vaccination, but, you know, that may only be a few people a day. I think that targeting the, through the school program, we're able to, you know, just reach so many more of them. So educating the parents, um, educating the teachers so that they can educate the children to go home and talk and, and have that conversation with their parents, I think is, uh, is, is, is the way to go. So because of the society we've just lived through rolling out just a massive vaccination campaign, I, I think we've all learned some things about what works well in promoting vaccines and what doesn't. So Dr. Brown, could I ask you what lessons you think you could apply from the COVID vaccination experience to HPV and other vaccines? Yeah, well, firstly, I think the COVID vaccination rollout in Canada was unbelievably successful. And I, I'm only familiar with Toronto, that's where I live. I participated as a vaccinator in some of these big clinics on a Saturday where you had 30 doctors and people lined up around the block and we vaccinated all day long. But the bottom line is one of the things that we did really well with the COVID vaccination program is there was a clear online registry for who had what and when they had it. So when you got into the program, you could pick up the person either by their name, by their birth date, their driver's license, their OHIP card, whatever it was, and you knew whether they had had their first shot or their second shot and what they were getting. The second thing is, as I mentioned before, it was all hands on deck. It was pharmacists, it was nurses, it was nurse practitioners, it was family doctors. When I went to the, the COVID vaccination center, I met anesthetists who I never met, just saw their signatures at the bottom of papers. You know, the dermatologist came out to vaccinate. When the OMA sent out a, a recruiting to doctors, there was a huge number of doctors that offered and volunteered to work at these vaccination clinics. And what we also did is we didn't just wait for people to come and be vaccinated. We brought the vaccine to people. So there were mobile vaccination clinics going into areas where people may not have had access, may not have had an internet to be able to register for vaccine. You know, the mobile clinics, the pharmacies, the community-based clinics, as well as the hospital-based clinics and the large clinics like the ones downtown. Um, you know, it was really a variety of areas to access vaccine and record keeping was done so that an individual person 
at the vaccine center could figure out who they were seeing and what they had already had. I think those are two huge things. We need to bring vaccine to people, not just wait for them to come for vaccine. And we need the record keeping to be easier. Okay, I've got to ask Dr. Dubey then, why is the record keeping so difficult? Sometimes I feel like I should have gone into IT actually, and I could have made a, a bigger difference as a physician. Um, you know, I think a lot of, we have progressed as a society, our systems have progressed. And I think in healthcare, that's not always the case when it comes to large databases, when you think about privacy, and when you think about systems speaking to one another. And I think that's really where we're at, is that we have uh, the provincial databases, and they um, can be challenging to use. They require a lot of training in order to be able to use them. And they don't often speak with Dr. Brown's electronic medical record or the pharmacist's uh, record keeping measure. Or And so that inability to communicate by the information systems is a lot of what is hindering um, you know, what, what, what we have. In fact, the COVID registry, vaccine registry that Dr. Brown talked about was excellent, but it doesn't speak to our other database that houses the HPV vaccines, for example. It was specific to COVID vaccines and often actually very challenging for people in primary care to access. So I think it actually could be a, probably a very simple <laughs> data fix Maybe that's the next Longwoods uh, debate is, you know, how medical technology and how we can can catch up with all of those safeguards in place though, right? For privacy, making sure not everyone can access your record. It is still a personal health record, but being able to use that as a tool um, to, to facilitate actually saving lives. Yeah. You know, Kelly, in, in Denmark, they have one electronic medical record system and the hospitals, the pharmacists and the doctors are all on the same system. In Ontario, just for starters, there's 16 different providers of electronic medical records. And that doesn't take into account what the pharmacies use and what the hospital uses. So th there's not a lot of coordination around electronic medical records and access of records. It is one of the most common complaints I hear when I interview doctors and they talk about their ability to, to provide care you know, with only 24 hours in a day, just how terrible on so many different levels the IT situation is in healthcare in Ontario in particular. So I don't envy any of you who uh, have to work in that system. Uh, but one other thing I did want to ask about lessons from COVID-19 for other vaccinations is that, you know, I feel like as the vaccination campaign wore on, we did start to see a fairly robust vaccine hesitancy, almost movement in Canada. And so I wonder maybe I'll, I'll start with you, Dr. Brown, if you could talk about whether the hesitancy that sprung up around COVID vaccines, have you seen that bleed into other vaccines, including the HPV vaccine? I, I think, Kelly, that I would say there's a big difference between vaccine refusal or being an anti-vaxxer and, mm -hmm. and vaccine hesitancy. Vaccine refusal says, I'm not taking this vaccine no matter what you say. And the answer is to stop talking and there's no point pressuring because that person's just going to back off even, even further. We actually have very small amount of vaccine refusal in Canada. Vaccine hesitancy are people saying, I don't know, is this really worth it? Did you take it? Haven't I had enough of these boosters anyway? It's really looking for more information. And depending on your relationship with the provider, whether it's a pharmacist or a family care doctor, Often the education around why this is important um, makes a world of difference for someone who is hesitant about vaccine. You know, Liz stated this very clearly. This is a virus that causes an infection that leads to a cancer. So it's not like measles. It's not like chickenpox. It's not an infection that we're immunizing for. We're immunizing to prevent a life-threatening, life-altering, life-ending cancer which is totally remarkable. And that's why the doctor got the Nobel Prize in 2008, because it's remarkable that we've been able to identify a virus causing a cancer. And what I often say to patients is if I could give you a vaccine and tell you I've just prevented breast cancer or colon cancer or lung cancer, you give me your arm in one second. 
It's because people don't understand the impact of cervical cancer. They don't understand the impact of head and neck cancers. These are not cancers that, you know, have been out in the news or talked about a lot. I think Michael Douglas talked about his throat cancer, and that was one of the first times we even heard about it. But the bottom line is breast cancer has a big support group, and, and so, so do some other cancers, whereas these cancers have only recently been identified as, as being HPV-related, and patients need to understand we're not just preventing an infection. We are preventing you from getting a cancer or your child from getting a cancer for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm seeing here that we've got quite a few questions that have rolled in. So I'm gonna take a couple from the audience, just uh, bear with me here while you while I take a look at this. Um, the first one is just from a commenter who asked a really common or a really sort of practical question. And that is, until what age in Ontario is HPV vaccine publicly funded? Do you I wanna take that one, yeah. Dr. Dubé? Yeah, I can take that, yeah. So as of today, um, if you are um, 19, uh, so you were in grade 12 two years ago, up to then, boy, not all boys, but all, all females for sure, um, and until grade 12, all males and females are eligible and can access the HPV-9 vaccine if they never received a publicly funded vaccine. If you are in the category of uh, um, men who has sex with men, then it's also publicly funded until 26 years of age. Um, and that would be through your doctor that you could access that. So that that is the age group for this particular vaccine for Ontario for now. And, and just to expand on that, Kelly, in other words, it was covered up until grade 12. But because of COVID, there's been such a delay, public health has added two years to it, which is why it's now up to age 19. Do you know if this is, if you're a person who this is just coming onto your radar and you're 22 or you're 23, how much does it actually cost and where can you buy it? Either, either Dr. Brown or Dr. Dubé? Yeah, it's about $150 a shot and it's a series of three shots if you're over the age of 14. Um, and to be very practical, you're only buying one shot at a time. It's one at time zero, time two months, time six months. Um, and I'm told that Costco is the cheapest place to buy it. And if you're under 14? Under 14, it's only two shots, wow. one and one six months later. And that's partly why we go into the school and try and get them at that young age because their system, their in, in, immune system is very robust. Mm -hmm. They haven't yet for the most part been exposed to HPV. So they're gonna get their best response. Can I just add that if you're 22 and you're in school still like a post-secondary institution and you have a health plan that they often um, we've heard can cover this vaccine. So there may be still uh, you know, a free option available. So please don't forget about your, your third party health plans as well. Mm -hmm. and setting aside the, um, the, the sort of financial question, is it worth it from a health perspective and a potentially preventing cancer perspective? to get it after you've become sexually active or, or you know, say in your mid-20s, is it worth, is it still worth getting, Dr. Beck? Yes. <laughs> so the vaccine that we have now prevents against nine strains. And while we've been talking about cancer, like seven of them are specific to cancers, which is really excellent. Two of them, um, I mean, some of them can also prevent genital warts. And that that is not the main reason that we're promoting these vaccines, but it is certainly something that uh, people are conscious of. Even if you were, um, even if you were infected, say with HPV, it's likely just one strain and the vaccine can prevent you against eight other strains. And so that's why, even if you were diagnosed with cervical cancer, you would still be recommended to get vaccinated because I got you it. could still be infected with, with one of the other strains. Yeah, go ahead, Liz. No, yes. I was just going to say, I got it. Like, why not? Right? Yeah. You got the it. Re the, research, the research suggests that it reduces your risk of recurrence. So even if you've already had a cancer, there's a benefit in being immunized. And our national guidelines give us no upper age limit for vaccination. So there's always a benefit. The more exposed you've been and the older you are, the less robust your immune system is. So it is better in younger people, but there's still a benefit. And, and I see women who are... Uh, slightly older, perhaps going to be exposed to a new partner, starting a second marriage or a second relationship. And absolutely, there's still benefit in immunizing. And again, no upper age limit for men or women. 
I got my, I know that when they biopsied my tumor after they removed it, they were able to biopsy it all the way back to HPV strand 16, which is one of the, the strands that is you're protected from if you're Im immunized. So I know what HPV 16 was able to do to my body. So what if I were to contract HPV 18? That's another strand that's very commonly associated with, with cervical cancer. I don't know. It could happen. I, I mean, different times in your life, you never know. And I thought, you know what? Better safe than sorry. Why would I not do this? And I, I have to practice what I preach, right? So um, are there side effects to the vaccine? We talked about that a fair bit. COVID when people are, are, are thinking about well, taking the COVID vaccine, what, if any, are the side effects of the HPV vaccine? Maybe I'll Dr. Brown on that. Yeah, so very few side effects. Your arm does get sore. Uh, so there's a lot of reactogenicity. Your arm is sore. Um, but we've now been using this vaccine for more than 10 years. There's more than 300 million doses being used worldwide. And we've seen no significant serious adverse events. You know, when your immune system gets stimulated, some people feel tired, some people can get a low grade fever, but nothing of significance in the last 10 years. And, and Health Canada and the FDA and the World Health Organization, everybody's been watching this vaccine very closely. Um, I'm loving some of the questions I'm getting here that are just asking practical questions about where and how to get this vaccine. So um, I do want to take another one of those. And this is from uh, somebody in the office named Rebecca who wants to know, what if your 14-year-old son got the first shot in grade seven and still needs the, the second and the third, but he's in high school now, where can he get it? Yeah, so uh, so the one thing to note is you never need to restart the series. So okay. if you've now aged up, um, you know, depending upon the age when you first get your vaccine or the age that you are now, it will either be two or three doses. So if you've had one, book an appointment to see uh, public health and get your, your second dose. They'll let you know if you need a third shot thereafter. You will not need to though start from zero, even if it's been years uh, between your between doses, that would be fine. And even provocatively, just to say, the World Health Organization has uh, now said, there may be a role for even just one dose. And maybe we should focus on one dose series across the world. Maybe if everyone got one dose, that would actually help us um, significantly. And so even one dose is better than, than no doses. Um, yeah. Hey, here's another practical question that I think is a great one and I don't know the answer to. And that's why can't this vaccine be introduced earlier for kids? For example, during infant early childhood immunizations, to help remove barriers that relate to stigma and worries about sexual activity among parents. Yeah, why not give this to one-year-olds? What's the reason, Dr. Brown? It is based on the data. It's based on how this was studied. So the youngest age that it's approved in North America and around the world, I believe, is age nine. Mm -hmm. And so we don't give it under age nine because it was not studied in younger people. Um, you can, uh, Quebec gives this vaccine in grade four, Ontario, we give it in grade seven. So you can give it to younger people in every province and territory of Canada, the vaccine is provided by public health. So there's no cost to the individual, but in general, nobody is giving this vaccine younger than age nine because it wasn't studied. Okay. Um, I wonder as well, whether, you know, this, this last question I mentioned about, you know, some of the concerns when this vaccine was first launched was that it would in some ways sort of be a license for young people to participate in sexual activity. Um, I wonder, you know, maybe I, I'm getting a, a head shake from Liz, so I maybe want to go to her. Um, <laughs> I, I do want to get your thoughts on Do you? I, do you? <laughs> I, think I, I, I think I do, you know. I mean, what do you think about the fact that that has been, for, for some people, a disincentive to get this vaccine? You know... I think it's troubling and I think it's, it's, I, 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 I don't want to misspeak. Mis so Dr. Brown, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in Australia, they rolled it out from the get-go for males and females. And is that correct? No, it was just for women okay. at the beginning. Um, okay. But the bottom line in, in terms of, um, the vaccine is the actual data, and there's data from some US studies, shows that people are less likely to be sexually active when they've been vaccinated. And that's because they've had some education around exposure and around risk. And mm -hmm. so 
just like you don't run to step on a rusty nail just because you got a tetanus shot, the actual education around sexually transmitted infection and HPV was very effective. And so we see less sexual activity, not more. Right. I, I, I guess my thought on this is, had we rolled it out to begin with in both males and females, if we would have seen the resistance that we did, I can remember I was actually going through my my chemo and my radiation as this whole debate was raging on, oh, don't don't vaccinate for cervical cancer because this adverse thing could happen and this adverse thing could happen. And the media was really um, there. There was people were very, very nervous of this vaccine. And and part of me wondered if, if it would be like that, if it wasn't so strongly associated with sexual activity and females and and now you know, we see it a little bit less so, but I remember just thinking to myself, if I could go back and get this vaccination instead of doing what I'm doing right now at 24, um, I, I would have in a heartbeat because there's just no, there's no reason why it needs to happen to anyone else. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, there's nothing worse than being a young woman and having so many people examining you and being in that area. And you're so vulnerable. It's, 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 it, and you just want so desperately to live and to be okay and to get back to what your life was like. And there's absolutely nothing you can do at that point. And that would be, I felt horrible, but I can only imagine what the mother or father of a young woman or a young man suffering from cancer would feel having known they could have gotten them this vaccine and they didn't. And now that's the fate of their child. So I think that's a really, really important thing here is, is, as a mother now myself, I have a 10-year-old girl, I have a 15-year-old stepdaughter and a 16-year-old stepson. And let me tell you, every single one of them is up to date on their vaccinations for cervical cancer, for HPV, because there's no way I'm, I will ever let that happen to any of them. And I think every parent needs to really think about that fact in, in all of this. Can you live with the idea that one day your child could get sick knowing you could have prevented it? Uh, you Kelly, can I can I add a real life example for right now? Sure. I mean, we're also in the midst of a monkeypox outbreak worldwide, and we've actually seen worldwide um, that the numbers have come down. We had a peak and we've come down, and we've had a vaccine. And uh, a lot of the it's hard to say was it the vaccine that made the numbers come down, or was it change in behavior? And it might have actually been both. And I think that it's a very good example. We're not saying, well, why would you give the monkeypox vaccine? Isn't that going to encourage them then to go ahead? And and you know, increase risky behaviors. Well, actually, um, it, it hasn't. And so, I oh. think there are many examples that we can use to say, "Don't let that fear." It's actually misinformation. And so, let's just call it that, you know. And let's just actually really just talk about the facts and uh, and and go from there. You, Liz, you mentioned something early in that last answer you gave, which was that a few years ago, I think this was maybe around the time when you were dealing with um, some of your own health issues as a result of this, that there was a fair bit of attention and reporting being paid to the idea of there being adverse events attached to this vaccine. So not side effects like a sore arm, but really serious adverse effects. There was some not super responsible reporting that was not in my outlet, just for the record. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I wonder if um, Dr. Brown and, and Dr. Dubé, if you guys could both address some of the concerns that have been raised in the past and that you still find all over the place in line, online, pardon me, about there being um, adverse events attached to this vaccine. You know, I think that uh, people get emotional about different things and sometimes there's, uh, you know, something online with no, no source and no, uh, no context to put it in. The World Health Organization has gone into Japan, for example, where they were questioning whether HPV vaccine was related to autoimmune diseases in young women. We see autoimmune diseases in the same age group that we vaccinate. And the World Health Organization was able to prove that there was no correlation between this vaccine. That doesn't mean there isn't still chatter about that because people don't often understand and realize what the data shows. The bottom line is there are no serious side effects from this vaccine, and it's been examined under a microscope. Um, of all the vaccines, this one has been examined very carefully in multiple different countries. And so I think we have to realize when someone is anxious about something, maybe the question is not to talk about the vaccine, but what are you anxious about? 
what is making you focus on this? Because this is all about cancer prevention. So let's just cut to the chase. You seem anxious about this. What is making you so anxious? Because I want to say to a patient that I'm not going to let something like this, something like what happened to Liz, happen to you on my watch. My job as a family doctor is really to focus on you, to focus on your health, and to do everything I possibly can to keep you healthy. I can't do that unless you agree, unless we're a partner, we're in a partnership together. And part of that partnership, without question, is vaccine. Yep. Can I just add to sure. the piece on, you know, sometimes stories are very compelling, but they're not always true. And I think that we've seen that. Um, I have had to present at school boards on this vaccine, you know, um, some of them, Catholic school boards, public, all kinds of different places where people have come forward making claims. And just because someone makes a claim, this happened to my child after the vaccine, doesn't mean that the vaccine caused it. And I, I think we really have to, to remember that cause and effect is something that you can examine scientifically and determine uh, whether the vaccine caused something or not. And, but yet it's very, very easy to be able to, 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 to tell the story, uh, even though it's, it may not factually be, be, it may be factually misleading. Dr. Rosan, is there anything you wanted to add to that? I'm wondering as a, a new doctor, what kinds of concerns you have heard from patients about this vaccine? Yeah, certainly I can touch on that. I think that um, we live in a, in a society where our patients are, you know, very educated and they have access to a lot of different platforms for information. So this is certainly, you know, goes with patient-centered decision-making. I think, um, you know, our role as a healthcare provider is to sort of address, like Dr. Brown mentioned, what are you anxious about, right? And can I help address those concerns? And I may not have every single answer to every study that's ever been done, but I think that a big role for us is to help um, with knowledge translation and providing people with sources of information that are uh, legitimate sources of information. I think that is a big part of what I do every day, sort of knowledge translation from sources I believe are, you know, um, appropriate sources. And Dr. Brown's mentioned the WHO, the CDC, we have sources that are behind this vaccine um, and we have a lot of safety evidence. So if, you know, we're seeing someone who has hesitancy, well, kind of getting to the bottom of that is sort of the more artistic, more personal side of medicine. But I think that, um, uh, again, in a world of patient-centered care, we are hopefully addressing specific issues from families. And Kelly, can I add something? So the Federation of Medical Women of Canada, just as of yesterday, launched a new website called Canada versus HPV. Because what we're talking about is that HPV affects everyone. Someone may be the patient, the way Liz was, but her family was affected, her children were affected, everybody was affected. And so for some credible information, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you want it as a parent, whether you're a healthcare practitioner, you can go to that website and we've put up really credible, accurate information and some links to more information in different areas. So it's Canada versus HPV. Okay, thanks for that. I have somebody here who's also asked in the question about whether patient groups might have a role to play in disseminating this information and whether either public health or perhaps the Federation of Medical Women of Canada could provide some language that patient groups might be able to use in their social media and in their own postings. Yeah, I, I think there's language on the website. There is a downloadable information sheet on the website so that as an individual patient, you can be um, you can be aware and you can have the knowledge in order to talk to your friends and peers, you know, because one of the things we know is that just people talking to people spread information and hopefully that information is accurate and good information. So on our website, we've got a number of downloadable printouts giving the information. And that's one of the reasons we wanted the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education to come up with a standard information sheet and send it to everybody so that there's not a lot of misinformation and that we're amplifying the message and echoing what somebody else says in terms of the accurate information. 
But can I also say though, patient groups, I mean, Liz is such a perfect example of how mm -hmm. she can cut through the numbers. Like, I mean, I can give you the numbers and I, you know, but when she speaks, I think you hear the other side to it. And when you hear from parents that have chosen to get their children vaccinated, it normalizes it. So I think that actually is a really great place for patient groups to start is actually to tell the narrative. I mean, you know, the true narrative, like not with false false information in there but i think that that actually can be extremely compelling mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right i think we're patient groups a lot of when i think of patient groups i think of cervical cancer or breast cancer or what so patient groups often develop after medical conditions right mm -hmm. they're never there before in the prevention phase so yeah, it also though might be an audience that if it's patient groups for another type of cancer or for another type of illness, you know, they might have an audience who's pretty eager to take preventative steps, no mm -hmm. matter what the disease yeah. is. Yeah, so we're down to about five minutes um, until we wrap up here. So I wanted to go to each of you to give you an opportunity to offer us some final thoughts. And I'll start with you, Dr. Rizan. Okay. Uh, well, I want to thank you for having us today. And I think uh, you know, I'm honored to, to be here amongst this group of panelists. I think we all share uh, the same sort of passion about how important this is. And I think the take home message here is, you know, we have a very clear understanding of what causes these cancers and these cancers affect everyone. How cool is it that we get to stand ahead of everything and just prevent you know, HPV related cancers through vaccination. So I don't think we can sit still. I think we've seen it with COVID. We've seen when it, these multifaceted approaches all come together. And I think we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to, you know, the, the population of Canada um, to really make this a priority. Thanks. Liz, your final thoughts? Um, I would just say, um, you know, talking to the parents, I'm, I'm a parent as well. And, you know, we do everything we can for our babies from the moment they're born to make sure they have the very best lives possible, um, you know, from, you know, getting them the, the best formula to, you know, or, you know, whether you're going to breastfeed them or like, you know, we do everything for our babies. We, we buy them organic food. We do, you know, we, there's nothing we don't do. We save for our ESPs. We, we plan everything. Why would you not take this small step just to make sure you're stacking their their healthcare odds in their favor and and make sure they're never going to be one of those those unfortunate people that have to go through these horrible journeys that we've all unfortunately you know bear witness to and we we see what happens to women and men when they deal with this type of cancer and how invasive and how um, you know almost predatory it can be. So please consider stacking the odds in your child's favor for a long, ha happy, healthy life without HPV-related cancers. And Dr. Dubé? Yeah, you know, Canadians have, uh, they vaccinate, they vaccinate their children. We have, in general, have very good vaccination rates for routine childhood vaccines, and this is just another one. And I think that's the way we need to start thinking about it, that this is just another routine childhood pre-adolescent vaccine that we need to make sure that our children get. Um, you know, in schools, you're going to get this with a, a vaccine to prevent meningitis and a vaccine to prevent a hepatitis B, which is another cancer-causing virus. Um, so I think, you know, as we're coming out of the pandemic, let's realize we're coming out of the pandemic because of vaccines as well, too. Let's not forget about how important they are, how important they continue to be. And, you know, we're all busy. We're all rushing around. Um, it may not be top of mind. It may have fallen to the bottom of our list as parents, but um, it's okay we'll catch up, you know, get to it. And please do uh, help your child make the choice, make the choice for your child. And, uh, and you know, that that's how the future is, go is going to, to look bright. And we don't want another pandemic. We don't want a pandemic of HPV either. All right, thanks. And then the final word to you, Dr. Brown. You know, Kelly, I've been in practice for some time and uh, the youngest woman that I lost who died of cervical cancer was 28. I've seen vulvar cancers, I've seen anal cancers, I've seen vaginal cancers. I have a survivor of head and neck cancer, but he can't swallow, so he can't eat and he can't talk, and he has a gastric feeding tube. It's been totally devastating to his life. I think the bottom line is not on my watch. 
I don't want to let my patients get cancer when we an HPV related cancer when we can prevent it. And looking at the bigger picture of all of Canada and looking at the Federation of Medical Women of Canada and what we've tried to do, we've tried to personalize this message and we've tried to say the message is the same, not on my watch. We've got to do better at every level of government, of, with public health, with all the people that can collaborate in this space, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, the whole gamut. Somebody like you who does health reporting to understand the issues and why this is so important and we are so very privileged in Canada to have access to this vaccine. We want to take advantage of it, and we want to be one of the first countries. We won't be the first. Australia is ahead of us, but one of the first to eliminate cervical cancer as a public health issue. So I want that 90% of people under the age of 25 immunized so that we will lose cervical cancer as a diagnostic code. Nobody will see it. Nobody will know it anymore. All right. Thank you. Thank you all very, very much for your time. Um, this has been a really interesting and important discussion. I'm going to turn it back over to Matt. Uh, again, I just wanted to emphasize the thank you very much. And that is it from Longwoods. And that is it for today. Have a wonderful day. Take care. See everybody later. Bye-bye.